Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a animated gentleman. We've been having quite a conversation. We, I, I just eventually had to say, we had to say, you know what? Let's just start recording. So, so here we are. He has a very, very vast and varied background in, in the finance world, which is why I was so darn curious to talk to him because now he's in real estate to get that incredibly rich perspective. And this gentleman is the principal and founder of Lombard Equities, and he is Ari Van Gemmeren. Ari, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you, sir. Nice to be here. Yeah, fantastic, man. So tell me, and you know, uh, I already know the answer to a couple of these questions because I already asked you and you already told me, but for the audience's sake, where does the Ari Van Gemmeren story start? Yes. And you're referring to my business career, correct? No, no, I'm not, man. I'm dialing it all the way back to where you grew up. Sure. Yeah, of course. So my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and fled to Bolivia in South America, where she married a Dutch mining engineer. So her name was Annegret Besser, and she married a Dirk van Hemmeren. <laughs> okay. My father was born, Ari van Gemmeren. He immigrated to the States when he was 18, was homeless in Los Angeles for like a year or two while he was trying to find his way. Ultimately became a physician in the East Bay and practiced cardiology for about 40 years with John Muir Health Systems in the East Bay. I was born there and attended De La Salle High School in Walnut or Concord, California. Went to UC Davis and then came back and started my career in finance. So had no background in finance. I was a history and political science double major with a minor in philosophy. And nonetheless, wanted to get into the financial services business. So started working for a very large money management firm in the peninsula. Worked my way into stock market research analysis. I was an equity, equity stock analyst. And then left there and went to Goldman Sachs, where I was there for a number of years, like five years roughly. And then joined a family office as a client of mine, and then ultimately started Lombard Equities Group in 2020 to do real estate acquisition. So that is all the way back to my grandmother in Berlin to today, really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you something. You did a great job because a lot of times the answer to that question, which I ask all my guests, goes on for like 20 minutes. And then I'm thinking to myself... And they, they don't come up for air and I don't want to be rude and interrupt them. Sure. And so, and then I'm thinking, are my, is anybody interested in this besides <laughs> me? It's the question. So no, you did a fantastic job. So, so you probably said it and I didn't, I didn't hear it. Where did you said, you said your dad came to the country when he was 18. He was homeless for a year or two. Where did you say he came from? Bolivia. Uh, so he did come from Bolivia. Okay. Yeah, he was born and raised in Bolivia, you know. Rough light on rough life on the streets down there. You know, he's one of the only kind of white Jewish kids that was down there, and uh, gotten gotten fist fights and fisticuffs, and got sent to different boarding schools. And, and my my aunt, called Tia Maria, moved to the United States ahead of him, and then he kind of followed her. And my his his brother, my uncle Dirk, was in the U.S. Army for the Vietnam War. So he came and enlisted in the army and, and went to Vietnam. And uh, my dad came and was living in Los Angeles. And as he tells it, was homeless for about a year living in a car. 
trying to figure it out and went to Los Angeles City College and ultimately decided on medicine, went back to Mexico for medical school and then did his residency at the VA in Irvine and then moved up to the Bay Area and we've been here since. So I got it. Okay. So on the out of school, you got into the finance business. You ultimately became a stock analyst. And I'm just curious to know, like, if you were to look at all your experience in finance, which yours truly knows nothing about, and you said you were a stock analyst, like what exactly, what was the lion's share of what you were doing and, and what did you learn from it? Yeah. So the money management firm I was with is called Fisher Investments. And today it's like a $200 billion AUM firm. We were managing maybe $80 billion at the time I was there. So, you know, I was in the equity research group. So we were doing really anything the investment policy committee needed us to do. And, you know, it was an awesome group, like an amazing, amazing company, great performance, like truly an awesome place to work. And they were very data heavy. So it was always like, okay, let's parse the data. Let's understand our thesis on this thing at a deeper level. Let's go into the CPI index. Let's dig into the constituent components. We would call professors at universities that were like compiling indices and like do interviews with them and be like, all right, how did you construct this thing? Like, because I mean, Ken Fisher, the founder of that firm, is truly an extraordinarily intelligent guy, and he, you know, he was like always digging into numbers. Like, let me let me peel back the other upper layers and get inside and like really understand how this thing is formed. Which has been, I have to tell you, has been really helpful now for me as inflation's rearing its head to really put that hat back on and go into the CPI index and be like, all right, what's driving inflation, right? Like what's, and, and do I, do I think we've peaked? Do we think we have more to come? Like that, that understanding of like, not just taking superficial data, like, oh, the CPI is this, therefore that's the number. Be like, okay, but what, what is the CPI, right? And getting into those components has been a really, one of the great lessons from that time, right? And one of the, one of the other lessons is like how you can fool anyone with data, right? And so like, do you, you know, and the news reports data as like facts, right? And understanding from that experience that like data that's being reported is not necessarily the fact, it's not necessarily the truth. And you can kind of break it apart. And so that was a really a lot of what I did was like the support of the investment policy committee, supporting senior analysts as they were compiling theses on like why we're investing in this company, why we like this sector. And we were providing a lot of the data and inputs that went up to the top level guys. They were making the ultimate decisions for kind of what to do. So. Well, in addition to managing $80 billion, another accomplishment that Fisher Investments has achieved is producing some of the most annoying television commercials anybody has ever seen. <laughs> Maybe it's just job. me. <laughs> you, you've seen them? I, I've seen them. I actually know most of the people personally that are in the commercials. So I oftentimes message them afterwards and say, I didn't know you were a celebrity. That's awesome. Like, I know you. I saw you on TV. But yeah, they've done, I mean... They've done a good job of getting their name out there. Yeah, they have. That that one woman is so annoying to me. And I, I she's probably the nicest person or Judith. I don't remember her name. You, oh, yeah. you know that woman? I don't know her What's personally. Her? There's other ones okay. I know. I yeah, but yeah. Yeah. And, they've, done, and they, they've recently started running the TV ads. I mean, they, they, you know, but they have a reputation for like a lot of advertising. But I will tell you, having been on the inside, that their performance is really good too. Like they've done a really good job of performing for clients over time. And, you know, I was proud to be a part of the firm. They did, they, they're a good firm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I, I, I am in no way maligning them as a company. It's just uh, my, my background is advertising. So I'm super sure. attuned to it. So I'm like, <laughs> so oh my God. So you should respect them greatly. You should like, they did such a good job. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I do. I just, I, I, the commercials just drive me to, anyway, I think I've belabored that point. Okay. So, so I guess the question I really, really wanted to ask you is, so how do you go from this background that you sure. have? How do you determine? And I, and I see that you had, you'd founded Lombard, I believe in, in August of 2020. So it's a Correct. little north of two, two years ago, part of, of a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. How do you then, Ari, come up with the conclusion based on the incredible background you had, research, data, analysis to go, I'm going to do this in real estate? Yeah. yeah. So I'll start, I'll make it quick, but I'll start at Fisher. So there was a senior analyst at Fisher who uh, was incredibly, incredibly intelligent guy. He'd been there for 2008, 2001, like really smart data guy. And I... You know, I think this is the important lesson on this is to check your assumptions at the door of any analysis, right? So you have your set beliefs, right? And then when you get into it, you need to let your beliefs go, right? And so, you know, Ken always said, the side point, but we'll get to this later, but don't ever invest based on your political assumptions. You have a political view and then an investment view, but political view can't drive your investment view. Like they're, they're not aligned. They're not the same. And so one of my preconceived notions when I was a stock market guy, and even when I was a Goldman to an extent, was that stocks were the best. And they're liquid, they're great, they have high return, we should do that. And I'd also bought into this conviction that like people that bought real estate were like old-fashioned and old-thinking, and this was the right way to do it. And so this, this analyst, this senior guy, you know, I said something along those lines to him, and he's like, have you really thought about what you're saying? And I was like, yeah, of course, you know, stocks are the best. We should invest in the liquid portfolio, it's better. You know, eight to ten percent annualized returns. We should be happy with that. And he's like, "Well, you know, here's my here's my research." And so he pulls up the spreadsheet that he's been running on his computer, and it's comparing it's comparing like the returns of real estate over time versus the stock market over time. And he's like, "Look, real estate's better. Like, it's better. Look at the returns." And I was like, "Oh, like, you know, here I am spouting this perspective, and this guy has done like deep analysis, and he's a stock market research analyst, right?" And he's like, "Real estate's better." And I was like, "Okay." So you know, fast forward, I go to Goldman. I have a bunch of very wealthy clients and I'm meeting a lot of wealthy people in the city. And they're telling me, like, you should buy real estate. You should buy real estate. And I actually remember pitching a client on investing with us. And he said, I've owned these buildings for a long time. I'm getting 10 to 12% cash yield on my properties. And I'm not paying taxes because of depreciation, all these benefits. Do you have something better than that for me? And I remember sitting there and thinking, gosh, no, <laughs> I have nothing for you. I can't, I can't pitch against that. So that was kind of the the two kind of revelatory experiences, right? And I started the Bigger Pockets thing. I started listening to Bigger Pockets. I started reading every book I could get my hands on. And so about halfway through my time at GS, I decided I'm going to start buying real estate for my own account. And so I went out and started buying small multifamily. And I've, since then, I bought a building per year in my own name, where I really was like, okay, I'm committed to this. Like, I'm not going to do the 401k anymore. I'm going to figure out how to get my money out of my 401k. I'm going to fully go into real estate. And make mistakes on my own dime and just get into this business. So by the time I started Lombard, I already owned three apartment buildings on my own behalf. And I, I really felt like I'd learned the industry. You know, and I've, I'm still learning. We're, we're all learning every single day. But I, by the time I started Lombard, I was like, it was clear like, okay, I know what to do. I've developed a ton of investors and family offices that I work with or I've known or I've interacted with over time. I think the time is right to go launch this thing. And kind of a personal performance to point to at that point as well that was helpful in the first conversation to say like, well, I've been doing this. This is how I did it. I'd like to do it at a bigger scale. When you said that you were meeting with people in the city, your clients, this was in San Francisco, in San correct? San Francisco. Yeah, I was in the, right. I was in the, working in downtown San Francisco at the time. 
And so where were these first few buildings, these first apartments that you bought and number of units and all that kind of stuff? I started buying in Portland, Oregon, which is where I, I really started. And the reason for Portland, there's, a, there's a many reasons, one of which though is due to Fisher. So Fisher had moved its offices to Camas, Washington, directly north of Portland, and was undergoing a big push to convince people that they ought to move to Portland. Like, you know, we're moving offices there. You guys should consider leaving the Bay Area and moving up here. And so I had a lot of exposure to Portland through that messaging and from the fact that we had offices up there. So I already knew about it. I think the other determinant for me was being in the Bay Area. You know, the price per unit to buy in the Bay Area is quite a bit higher than the price per unit in Portland. So another one of the driving rationales for me to start investing in Portland as a new investor getting into it was to say, I'd rather own more units, right? And I, I feel safer with more apartment units than less. So I can get more pound for pound units in Portland. Now obviously I could have gone I could have gone east, right, to the Midwest and probably bought many more units than I did, but I really wanted to focus on a market that I knew, understood and liked and had a thesis for. So that's why we started buying in Portland. So like my first building was a five unit building in the northwest of Portland. So Wow man. You you had you had courage to do that. Good good for you. How did you deal with the management? So yeah, it's a great question. So in my learning and education process, I had gotten this perspective really from bigger pockets, I would say, that there's two ways to do it. You self-manage or you outsource. And if you're self-managing, you're never going to expand beyond one or two buildings. And if you outsource management, you have the capacity to scale your business. And I had a full-time job. I was working full-time. I didn't have the time to self-manage my buildings. And because it wasn't local, I really couldn't self-manage my buildings. So from the beginning, and I always tell people this when they're getting into it, like I, from the beginning, always underwrote deals assuming third-party management. And it had to pencil and make sense with third-party management involved in the whole expense stack for the deal, or I couldn't do it. right? And so you can do a worse deal by self-managing because you're doing it, but then you've sort of bought yourself a job. So I always use third-party property management companies. Okay. And what year did you buy your first one? 2018. Okay. And so, you know, it's funny you talk about, you know, bigger pockets or what have you. One of, one of the recurring themes that I encounter doing what I do in the podcast is that it's, you know, it's very difficult getting good property management, period. Sure. And then def, and then definitely for smaller buildings. So what has your experience been along those lines? I could not echo that perspective more. I've, uh, <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've been through three property management companies in Portland and, um, you know, I find that to be the case and there's no like surefire mechanism to, to, to screen for that. I mean, I think re- doing interviews with other, inv- other owners who use them is really important. If you're going to be an active owner, not every property management company is for you. Like a lot of them are good. If you're like a long time mom and pop owner that's owned something for a long time, if you have, if you have a, 40 unit building that your father bought was handed down to you and you don't want to do anything with it. There's great companies for that. That's probably not the right property management company for someone that wants to pursue a value add strategy and do a lot of work on the building. So there's no surefire mechanism to pick a good one. I would say many of them are not good. I think there's a self-defeating aspect of property management too, which is the ones that are good end up attracting a lot of business, which makes them not good because their business gets too big too fast and they get overworked. And that's hard too, right? So how do you solve... I mean, you might you might be the guy that's in early and you found a great one, but they become not good because they get over they get overstressed and overworked. So it's absolutely true that it's tough. I mean, I would say 
read everything you can get your hands on about how to select good property management companies, interview their current client base and ask good questions and make sure that you have clear understanding ahead of time. Like, hey, I'm a value-add guy. I'm going to be very involved in property. There's going to be disruption. We're going to be doing work. Is that okay? How do you work with that system? Let me interview other value-add guys you work with, right? Or gals you work with versus like a very happy family owner that doesn't ever look at the property, right? There's like every owner's different and every property management company is different. So I would totally agree though. There's a very high variance of quality amongst property management companies. Got it. And so were the first three properties all in Portland? Yes. Okay. And then in, in interesting, I would not have assumed that they were big value add, but what do I know? It were they, were the three of them pretty heavy value add, you know, north of 10 grand a unit kind of thing or, you know, re, you know, full repositioning. What was the extent? Yeah. So I would say on personally owned properties, it's been a mix. So, you know, all like we bought a building last year, for example, or I guess two years ago now, 2021. There was a five unit building, right? And one of the five units needed a full reno. And it was like a large top floor unit and they were renting it for like fourteen hundred a month. And we went in and we did a twenty thousand dollar renovation to the unit and we just leased it out for like twenty ninety five a month. And it was like a fully dialed nice unit, right? So I got a six six hundred dollar rent lift on that unit, plus rubs, like plus all this which is the utility build back system we use. So that was a huge win for us, right? There, the building also had four one-bedroom units that we didn't feel like we needed to renovate. Like we we looked at it, we're like, we're gonna get $1,395 to $1,495 a month for those units. And as tenants turn, we'll get new tenants in, we'll make the utility build back system in place. And I underwrote the deal that way. So I said, I don't want to do the full renovation of everything. And that's not, that's a, something you have the liberty with with your own buildings, right? Because you're not necessarily under the gun on a timeline, like you have to implement the business plan by this point and get it all done. My personal portfolio, I view as you know lifelong holdings. Like, I'll, ideally, I'll pass them to my children, and so we have a little more time and liberty to like take our time with the business process. I mean, the very first deal I ever bought, I've never renovated a unit in it, but I knew that the previous ownership was just not pushing rents as much as they could. The units were in pretty good shape, so when the units return, you know, we would just market them at a higher price. We would get the higher price, and it wasn't some of that. I'm sure was like overall market rent appreciation, but a big piece of it was also just like they were under renting the units, right? I mean like, you know, and that's that's the value of the smaller type deals is you can find chronically mismanaged properties where, you know, and that the, you know, to wrap up your question quickly, like the the use case the best use case I think in the small building space is find a mom and pop owner that's owned it for a long time. They have very little debt on the property. Therefore, they, they don't have the thing that's pushing them to improve the building. And they're cash flowing like crazy because they don't have any debt. But you come in and you say, well, I'm going to have to use debt to acquire this thing. And because of that, I have to push the property. And you look and you do an analysis of comparable rents and you're like, well, they're under market by 200 a month. And maybe they're under market by 200 a month and you don't have to do anything. So, so my personal buildings have mostly been like that. Like, you know, selectively we'll put money in. Where there's a huge pop, six hundred a month or something, and otherwise we'll kind of push like that. So, got it. Okay, so it's like not a one size fits all. It's literally unit to unit, building to building. Yep. Are now that you're there, are you going to take over the management and managing them yourself? Definitely not. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so you have what you you've identified the 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 best of the bad. 
to manage the, the, the portfolio that you have? I think, I think we found a fantastic Portland property management company that I'm very happy with. And they've done a great job. They're, they're not the cheapest property management company. They're not the most expensive. I think they charge fair value for what they do. And I think that's actually really important, right? Because if you hire the cheapest property management company, I think the negative is their employee retention is terrible. So because they're not paying their employees enough, right? And so it's tempting. And this is a broad lesson for real estate in general. It's tempting to hire the cheapest guy, cheapest contractor, cheapest whatever. And I, I find that that ends up being the most expensive decision you make because you, you, you think you're saving money, but you end up spending more money fixing the problems that came up because you hired the cheapest guy. Also, don't believe in hiring the most expensive guy, right? I think the, probably the answer is somewhere in the middle, right? But it's, it's hard. It's a hard decision to make. But the, this property management company that we're working with in Portland, you know, manages like 150 units for me now in Portland and they're great. Like they've done. They've been fantastic, right? They get units leased quickly. Their tenants like them, which I think is an underappreciated thing in real estate. I think we're often focused on what's my bottom line, how much money am I going to make, like how little are you going to cost me? But there is a huge value in tenants liking your property management company and wanting to stay and re- and sign back up and feeling heard, right? I feel like we don't give enough credit to that in this business, but it's really important, like very important. Are just common sense stuff, right? I mean, that you know, you'll make you'll make so much more money just with you know getting your your retention up, you know, ten points or fifteen points sure. or twenty points, which is probably possible on smaller buildings. Like, okay, and and when you you said that when you first started, you were kind of unwrite you were underwriting in the the management expense of it, which was you know smart in in order to have them pencil. And so going back to like when you started in 2018, what did you need to put, like, what did penciling mean for you yeah. at that time? What, what was your, you know, your criterion for, for pulling the trigger? Yeah. So I'm an IRR based investor, you know, and for the, for the audience, I mean, most everyone's probably aware of that, but it's the internal rate of return, right? And it's kind of a complicated metric, but at a very simplistic level, you can think of it as almost like an annualized return for the property between cash flow and equity return over time. And so I'm an IRR guy. And so, and the why, you know, I, I was kind of the metric I learned. I was comfortable with it from my, you know, background in private equity and, and investment management. And so when I underwrote deals, I was at a teens IRR, right? I want to be in the mid teens, kind of net of everything. And my perspective on that was to say, if you're getting like, called a 12 IRR deal, it's better than the stock market, right? And the stock market to me was the competitor, right? So you want to outperform the stock market or else why would you do real estate? Like, why would you invest in an illiquid asset that has the potential to drain your bank account if something goes wrong for a sub market, for a stock market like return? Because the reality is, if you can get 8% liquid, fully transparent annualized return on the stock market and you can get your money out at any time and you're not going to have unexpected expenses, roof leaks, things that come up. Why would you buy real estate? So at, at a minimum, I wanted to like exceed the stock market. I had to, or else it made no sense to do it, in my opinion. And so my, my bogey was a 15 IRR. So I would underwrite to like a five-year hold period and say, in this time, I must solve to a 15 net IRR. And one of the other reasons that's important is, you know, I, I always kind of push back on just underwriting to cash flow. So I know a lot of people like to underwrite to cash flow. My problem with underwriting to cash flow is you can... You can generate good cash flow, but still have your total return be worse than the stock market. Right? Versus with IRR, at least I was solving for 
a total return that was going to kind of get me where I wanted to go. And that's why I always like one of the things I push back on is, you know, an overly large fixation on entry cap rate, right? So like people are really focused on like, I need to buy at a six cap. It has to be a six cap when I buy. But the entry cap rate doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the deal. Like you, like it could be a six cap on entry, but it could be a brand new construction building that has zero upside, right? And so you're, you're going to have healthy cash flow, but where's your upside, right? Like where's your growth? Where's your potential for the building to do something for you? Or you could buy at a four cap in Seattle, right? Or San Francisco, but the building's rents could be 50% of where they could be, right? And so who cares? I mean, it matters, right? The entry cap rate matters, but it matters less than like, where are you going with the asset, right? And so that, so my my big takeaway from all the education I've had was solve for the for the for the exit, right? Don't solve for like what I'm entering on, but also think about where am I going with this building and where can I take it? And then I wanted that to solve. So mo- all of the deals I've done, I try to solve for a 15 net IRR for myself and for investors on on a deal for a 5-year hold period. And my view was if you can get a net if you can get a net 15 IRR on a deal, you're, you know, almost doubling the stock market. That's pretty good. People should be happy with that. What percent did were you putting down, and what kind of financing? I want to say twenty-five to thirty percent down, typically on my own deals and on syndication deals. We're doing now. I think you know the equity as a percentage of the whole right now is probably forty percent of the total. So financing has become a little bit of a, has become a challenge in doing deals. No question. Before this new interest rate regime, I would say we were doing closer to thirty-five percent of the deal stack. Like thirty-five percent was equity; the rest was debt. Uh, on the ones that you bought, and, and I guess the reason I'm asking this is I I looked, you know, to buy property in the Bay Area many many times. I actually bought a five unit in San Francisco. You know, it wasn't nice, but anyway, that's another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> that's when you and I get together yeah. when when I come up to Portland in a couple of weeks. But anyway, so so that's so so that's where like where I'm coming from. Just kind of asking you. So at twenty five to thirty percent down on a five unit in Portland with some value add component to it. And I understand you're underwriting to an IRR, which I think was smart. Would it at least break even or, or would you be underwater for a period of time? So as I'm recalling, the underwriting told me I was cash flowing from day one. And I don't, I've never done a deal. I've actually never done a deal where the underwriting said the reality is different, right? Because you have vacancy and stuff comes up that maybe you didn't underwrite to, which is why conservatism and underwriting is so important. But at least for me, I've never underwritten a deal that had negative cash flow going in. The only, the only caveat to that would be deals where I've gone in that's kind of a heavier value ideal where there's a high vacancy component going in, right? But I, what I didn't want to do was come into a deal, negative cash flow when it's fully leased up. And like I have to dig my way out of negative cash flow, I have to renovate and improve units and get them to that point. To, to me, that was too risky. I don't want to take that market risk. I want to have day one, today's rents, I'm still positive cash flow. And then there's upside from there. But I've looked at deals, you know, where you have to raise a big interest reserve and you have like a year and a half of negative cash flow. And to me, it just didn't sit right. It doesn't feel right to me. And I never did that on any of my personal deals either. I see. You're at 150 units, which is absolutely amazing. You're you're my hero. We're we're actually at a, we're actually at like 190 198 across the West Coast right now. But yeah, thanks. Well, well, you're, you're, <laughs> yeah, well, you're 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 my hero by another 30 percent than what I just said. All right, awesome. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> is are they all in Portland? No, we own in Seattle in Portland and in the Bay Area. So we own a couple, two buildings in Oakland and a building in Berkeley as well. 
I see. And, th- and the buildings in Oakland you've acquired then, did you, did you raise money for those? Correct. Yeah, those are all, all of our Bay Area investments are Lombard investments, not personal. Van Gamert family investments. And in, in what kind of deals did you get in Oakland? Yeah. So our first deal we did, we bought a portfolio in Oakland and Berkeley. We acquired these in June of 2021. And if you recall, June of 2021, we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic and Cal was not back in school yet. And so part of that portfolio was actually a student housing deal very near to Cal that was completely vacant. And, you know, the thesis was basically like you have this really nicely renovated two buildings and you have a market that has been thrashed by COVID, right? As you know, living in the Bay, the Bay Area got hit very hard by COVID, really because of the restrictive like political regime that came in on top of everything, not necessarily because COVID whacked the market so bad. But Cal was a big a big hit on that, right? And I mean, think about the number of students that come to Cal and the effect on the rental market for that, <laughs> that school to just completely shut down. So that was like a very much not a value ideal. It was an opportunistic acquisition where we looked at what were they getting pre-COVID, what's happening right now, where do we think we can go with this thing? And we were like over a five cap on entry in two really well-located buildings that were pretty much fully renovated and dialed. I think our number was almost a five and a quarter cap on entry, which for the Bay Area is a great price, right? So we look back and we're like, okay, what was the cap rate in 08? Are we thinking about this? And then the other piece of the thesis was we knew Cal was coming back. And I had so many people chirping in my ear about, you know, academia has changed and the universities are going to shut down and no one's going back. And I said, maybe if you're like a tiny community college in the middle of nowhere, but I'm not buying that thesis for Berkeley, not, not anytime in the next 20 years. And so, by the time we closed the deal, the student housing deal in Berkeley had been completely leased because Cal was coming back in August and the students were coming, like flooding back into the market. So, you know, that was our first deal in the Bay Area and that was great, right? And like the, the Oakland asset that we bought in that transaction was not a value add deal, but Oakland rents were depressed because of COVID. So we looked at kind of what were they achieving before COVID? What are some minor value-add things we can do, like putting washer and dryers in units, putting solar panels on the roof to get rid of common area costs, monetizing storage, different things to kind of improve that. But a big part of the play was like we were buying it at like a low five cap on entry on a Adams Point located asset in Oakland. That's in a fantastic location. We felt good about it. And you know, we got great agency financing at 3.4% fixed for seven years. And we're still sitting on that deal and amortizing and it's you know, it's a great performer. The other deal we did more recently was a, you know, 15 unit building in Adams Point again. And same story that we look for, right? Like ownership had owned it for 30 years. They were not renovating units. They were not pushing rents. There was a fair amount of vacancy coming in. And so we asked them to maintain the vacancy, came in and leased, fully renovated the units, put washer dryers in units, did a bunch of nice stuff, brought in our Bay Area property management company, who's a fantastic group. And, uh, you know, we've hit our performance or exceeded them on every single one of those units, which has been great. So, wow, this is fantastic. It is fantastic, but it's also fascinating to me because I've never done a podcast where somebody's doing what you're doing where I live. So it's so interesting to me. Are these the, the deal in Adams Point and then the, the other deal, which which part of the portfolio was also in Adams Point and then the Berkeley Student Housing, were those publicly marketed? 
The first deal was publicly marketed. I think our value add there was being willing to buy them as a portfolio, which has been a big part of what we've done. I've done a lot of portfolio deals. I like to think that at the size of deals we're buying, being able to bring together my investors to acquire something as a portfolio is a pretty big value add for my investors. But we also create value for the seller because they have certainty of timing on their transactions. So like anytime someone's selling something, I'll always say like, do they have anything else they also want to sell? And you know we're going to want to get a bargain for buying in bulk. But I think that everybody benefits from that equation. So those deals were publicly marketed. The last deal we just did at this point was an off-market transaction where the seller was getting ready to go to market and the brokers brought it to us. We developed the relationship with them. And so you know, I just said, this is our track record. This is what we've done. We'll close. Let's get a deal done. And we got a pretty good price on it going in. Oh my God. So interesting. Do you do you find in and once again my frame of reference you know over the last couple of few years is you know people you know in the in the in the call them the, you know, the smile states right Florida Texas blah 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 etc and and that has been and maybe this is changing now with the interest rate kind of fiasco over the last six months but prior to that just competitive like beyond competitive to the point where it's even like when people crowing about how they won they're like idiots because that means you paid the moronic amount of money for this property you're an idiot right it, but in, in in this situation what is the do you, do you have a sense of the competitive landscape I could see where it wouldn't be that competitive. I don't know that many yeah. guys are doing what you're doing in this market. How competitive is it? Yeah, I think a major advantage... I mean, I have been obviously exposed via the bigger pockets, like podcast circuit to like where everybody else is investing. And I a lot of family offices that invest with me or that I've tried to get to invest with me have been pouring money into those states as well. So my like high-level thesis for why we're investing where we're investing partly is due to lack of competition, right? So like, it is not easy to invest in the Bay Area. Like, I'm not going to say like these deals have been fun. There has been some major hiccups and difficulty with local regulation. One case in point, right? little known fact outside the Bay Area, the Bay Area is still under the authority of the emergency mandate on COVID. You cannot evict non-paying tenants still to this day. So if you have a non-paying tenant, you are still forced to sit with that non-paying tenant. You can do nothing about it. Astonishing, right? We don't have, unfortunately, knock on wood, we have not had that issue ourselves, but it creates knock on effects that are difficult, right? And so there are, you know, another great case in point is we have this CPI based rent control regime in the Bay Area where this was the first year where we were supposed to have a real rent increase capability. And the Oakland City Council said, never mind, you can't do it. Now you're capped at 3%. You can never go over 3%. It's either CPI or 3%, whatever's lower. And so that's not fun, right? I, I totally empathize with people that are like, I don't want to deal with that, right? I think it's our opportunity because little known, also little known fact, but the person that wrote San Francisco rent control was the largest landlord in San Francisco at the time. So San, he wrote... San Giacomo. Yep, you got it. And he always said, I love it because it creates a floor on my properties and stability for me. And I think it's great. Like, I think it's great for me. And there's there are investors that like rent control, right? I'm, I'm evolving in my view of it. But my contention for a lot of these cities, the reason we've never done Arizona, Texas, Florida, any of these markets is I've been like, it's partly it's the timing of when I started, right? So we started in 2020. My thesis on investment has always been location, right? And everybody preaches location. It's important, right? My, my view has been th- these were disfavored markets when we started. 
A. B, I had some level of like asymmetric knowledge about that market versus my competitors. And C, there was no competition, right? So like everybody was fleeing Portland, fleeing Seattle. Nobody was investing in the Bay Area. And if you're one of the only guys that's out there putting capital to work in those markets, there's opportunities, right? And I have, I've gotten a lot of pushback from people. I'm like, I can't believe you'd invest in the Bay Area. That's crazy. And I always say, I don't know how many... Like, I know so many people individually who have made so much money investing in Berkeley real estate, right? And Berkeley real estate is about as tyrannical as it can get as a landlord for owning in that, in that city. Yet people make... There are big capital people putting money to work in Berkeley. So why? I mean, they're not, they're not stupid. They're making great money in that market. And so, yes, lack of competition is a huge thing. You know, there's a lot more to the, to the thesis on why the West Coast, why this. But it's been great. And I, it is harder. And I tell investors when we do Bay Area deals, it will take longer to extract the value. But I think there's no, like, there is a significant floor to like how low you can go on a Bay Area asset. And I, I'm, you know, I'm worried about all the syndicators that were pouring money into Mississippi and Tennessee and all these places where like you could get a five, you could get a six cap on an apartment building. It's like you can get a five cap in Oakland. I'd rather own an Oakland for a five cap than a six cap in Tennessee personally, but like people pour money into those markets. So. I'm just agreeing, agreeing, agreeing. You know, the reality is what you do here has not no risk, but no risk. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're yeah. never going to have any vacancies. Adam's point, I, I, what makes me wonder is, you know, how much is all the new stuff in Uptown and, you know, the thousands of brand new impact that you would know better than me. But I think longer term, you just, you're just never going to have vacancy issues. And yeah, you are mitigating a tremendous amount of risk. You're in the most consummate supply constrained markets. The rumors of people moving out of California are premature and ill founded. Who yep. said that? Who, what, what comedian said that the rumors of my death are in any premature? Anyway, whatever. And you could benefit from a, some of these, you know, headaches because it motivates the sellers to sell an asset yeah, that's undervalued, right? So you've just got to have the long term. And, you know, look, you're already, I'm sure you know, you're already seeing this in, in the, a lot of the smile states that occupancy is going down and rents are going down with it. And there was a lot of, you know, high leverage bridge debt and there's going to there's gonna be some pain in those markets. And, you know, you can keep building too. That's the other thing. And so... That's the huge piece. I mean, that's the, you know, I love to rag on Arizona. Arizona's a great state. I have family there. I have no issue with Arizona. But as an investment market, it's kind of like it exactly outlines my problem with these markets, right? You have red hot population growth, right? Which is great so long as it continues. But you at the same time have much lower barrier to new construction. And it's much easier to sprawl in every direction, right? And so like one of my... The way I think about the cities we invest in is like we want like bridge and tunnel cities, right? So like Seattle or Oakland or Portland are all great cases in point where it's like Seattle, where are you going to go? Like you cannot spread it. There is literally water. San Francisco is a great example of this too. It's seven by seven square miles. Like where are you going to go? There's been a lot of upward development, right? But that is incredibly expensive to do in these cities, right? And by contrast, like, you know, Phoenix or Tucson or in these markets, Go as long as you want in every direction and you can just keep growing. And so there's really no constraint to supply. And so as long as Arizona's population growth is red hot, it's okay. But the second that drops off, you have a problem. And I always ask people, would you rather live in Los Angeles at a fair price or would you rather live in Tucson? Right. And I think most people, the answer for most people is going to be, Oh, I prefer LA, but it's expensive and I, you know, it's too expensive for me. So 
what happens when Arizona's rents kind of get to a point? I think the answer is obvious. Like everybody would prefer to, I, I mean, I think everybody would prefer to be in Los Angeles where you're close to the ocean. The weather is much more moderate. It's kind of a hip place, right? Than being in Arizona. And I'm already, you're already seeing that happen, right? Because a lot of this, like the shift to the tier three markets that was the COVID story is already unraveling like very quickly. So, you know, Boise, case in point, home prices went from like a million to four million. You know, I have, I know folks that live there. They're like, I bought my home for a million, it's worth four million. There's no way it's worth four million, but that's what it is. And now it's tanking, right? Bend, Oregon is a good example too of a market that really blew up over COVID. But what industry is there in Bend? And, you know, institutions were ahead of the trend and then now they've been unloading these assets and saying, I'm selling it for a four and a half cap. It's a great deal for you. Well, yeah, maybe for the mom and pop that picks it up, but I don't think so. Because the markets, like their valuations went on par with Seattle, right? And you're looking at that and you're like, I'd rather own in Seattle than in the middle of nowhere. And so, you know, that's been a big part of it. I, I also, you know, I, I, I hesitate to have a thesis that's just predicated on robust population growth because that can, that spigot can turn off, right? And I think you said it sort of, but like the supply constraints of these Western markets or Manhattan, probably Manhattan's a good a case study of this as well, but like you don't need gangbuster population growth for, for prices to keep going up because you just need modest population growth, which they have, they still have combined with like significant supply constraints. I, I call them like structurally flawed markets from a supply and demand perspective that I think is much more conservative in the long run for investors. So that's, that's really been like why we've done what we've done. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, the, we'll see what happens during a recessionary period. I, I feel much safer owning core assets in Western cities with huge economic bases and massive, you know, industrial and business centers. And the other piece of it that I think is really hard to discount is let's just look at the Bay Area. The confluence of university ecosystems in the Bay Area is such a massive benefit for the Bay Area that will never go away. Like the research, the life sciences research, the technology research, the graduates that are coming out of Stanford and Cal, Santa Clara, like all these amazing university ecosystems, like companies will always need to have a presence here, at least for internships to then be able to land those candidates for full-time jobs. And the amount of like life science research coming out of those places, that is really hard to discount. Like You cannot discount the creative growth and possibility that emerged from a really strong university ecosystem. And I don't, you know, it's hard to find places that have that, that massive confluence of factors. So that's kind of been our thesis. This is so refreshing. Yeah, I, I get it. Well, you know, I think we only have one major source of disagreement. And that is Arizona is not a great state. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be polite. <laughs> I, know. I believe in respect to all people, Roger. I, you know, there's, there's definitely, I have family that lives there and I have, I'm sure you have listeners from there. So, you know, it's hot. Cactuses can be pretty and, uh, you know, they have good Mexican food. So, you know. <laughs> I hate the desert. Well, listen, what, <laughs> what, what, what would you say are the key? I, I'm so impressed with everything you said, man. What, what, you know, par partly because it's, it's, it's confirmation bias. Uh, so I, 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 sure, I agree yeah. with everything you said. What would you say are the key lessons you've learned in, in this last five years or whatever? Don't use the lowest cost guy. I mean, I think that's the, I've had that hit me in the face so many times over time. Like the lowest cost provider is not the best provider and will cost you more to use them. Conservative underwriting going in, you know, I have been shocked at the number of times that people's exit cap rate is is the same as their entry cap rate or lower than their entry cap rate. And it's like, 
especially, you know, I think now maybe you can get away with it a little bit more because cap rates have come up, but in like an incredibly low cap rate environment to be estimating exactly the same just feels like it, it might be the same, right? Like you may enter at a four cap and exit at a four cap. That's awesome. But you shouldn't bank on it. You're underwriting. You should always assume worse, right? To account for that. So I think conservatism and underwriting, you know, something I've learned personally as a syndicator, like I think there are two paths to get to all roads lead to Rome, right? And this road is the stable kind of like, let me manage the building over time and kind of get to my goal. And this road is the, like, we're going to take the really dangerous road. We're all going to end up in Rome at the same time. And so I think one thing I've learned is how to think about minimizing vacancy risk over the over the whole period and like trying to like more smoothly turn a building rather than this like, you know, let me go in and blow the rents out and like totally vacate the building and then but then you have a really nasty problem for yourself, right? Like you have a you have a no cash flow situation. Which is one of the benefits of where I'm investing. It's really hard to do that. So I think like a lot of the guys again with smile states, you can come in, you can do a hundred percent rent increases and blow a whole building out. You know, that works for a while. I think now is the time to be a little more careful with your vacancy rate and manage your tenants, which is, you know, goes again to like conservatism of underwriting. And especially in those markets, I think you got to be really careful, right? Like the, those rents may not be there when you turn the building. Like, you, like, you know, so assumption, checking your assumptions. Like, I like to write an investment memo on my deals as if I'm presenting to someone else to make the decision, not myself, right? And try to get ahead of the objections that person might give me to my deal, right? So I'll be like, Seattle, right? What happens if Amazon, like, what, how affect, how, how big of an impact is Amazon on Seattle's rental market? Are your assumptions fair for this deal given what we know about other apartment buildings in the area? Are you going to actually be able to hit those numbers? And I have to justify myself to this third party person. So, like, I would advise everybody, and I've said this on previous podcasts as well, but like, I would advise everybody to put your deal in writing. And challenge yourself on your deal and try to survive the gauntlet of like, you have to convince your supervisor that this deal is a worthwhile deal to make. I think it's a really good practice that I picked up from the venture capital business of like preparing an investment memo and presenting it to a committee on a deal to say, like, let's do this deal because you know they're gonna object to your deal. So you need to get ahead of the objections. But it's really good for yourself and your own confirmation biases and desire to do a deal to play that role and like pick your own deal apart. I would say those are those are the things that I, I do all the time and I think they're really valuable for everybody. So Ari, this has been fantastic. If somebody wants to learn more about you and Lombard, how do they get a hold of you? Go to Lombard Equities, E-Q-U-I-T-I-E-S dot com or you can email me at Ari at LombardEquities.com. And my contact information is on my website. So Always happy to talk shop, meet with anyone, chat about anything. It's a, this is, you know, real estate's my passion. I love it. So I can never talk enough about it. So, and, and you and I are going to talk more. So uh, I look forward yeah. to it. All right, man. I'll talk to you very soon. Okay. Thanks, Roger. All right. Bye. <laughs> 